Greetings and welcome to another episode of Seven Figure Millennials where you and I are on a mission to prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships as we make our biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality and create a life where we get to be successful on our own terms, following our definition of success and not someone else's. And if this is your very first episode, I wanna say welcome. I'm beyond excited to have you here. And if you're returning, welcome back. I say it every single week. I don't get sick of saying it because I appreciate you, love you so much for hanging out week after week. And today, you and I get to hang out with Harris the Third. Harris began his career at a young age traveling the world as an award-winning professional illusionist. He has performed for and spoken live to more than 2 million people in more than 30 countries on five continents. His performances have been televised to millions more on the Travel Channel and ABC Family. After traveling the globe and making a million dollars by the age of 21, only to go bankrupt a year later, Harris kickstarted a decade-long journey to understand the stories we tell ourselves and how they drive all human behavior. Armed with a unique perspective, his career re-exploded as a world-renowned speaker, storyteller, and entrepreneur. He is the creator of Transformation Theory and the author of the best-selling book, The Wonder Switch. Tapping into his background as a professional magician and understanding the intersection of storytelling and wonder, Harris developed a structured process that can dramatically change a team's culture or rapidly accelerate an individual's transformation from the story they feel stuck in to the life they want to live. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our first illusionist on the show, and I'm so excited for you to listen in on the episode and all the nuggets that Harris shares, but I want you to look out for three specific things for today. Number one, how getting a Christmas gift that he didn't want at nine years old ended up changing his life. And number two, and you heard a little bit about this from his bio, how Harris went from making over seven figures by the age of 21 to going bankrupt by 22 and what performing at a high school where a girl came up to him and handed him a razor blade had to do with realizing that the deceptions he was creating for others weren't actually really deception. And what true deception is, is it's actually rooted in the stories that we tell ourselves. So look out for that. And number three, why story is the operating system of your brain and how to uncover and correct stories you may be telling yourself that are holding you back. So all those to look forward to and so much more in today's episode. But before we dive in, I want to give a pre-show listener shout out, which goes to somebody who has an awesome username, <laughs> Le Pizza Man, <laughs> I think is how you say it. Uh, they left a review saying, Brandon has top-notch advice, worth a listen. So super succinct. Thanks for sharing that, Le Pizza Man. And if you're listening to my voice right now, you're a returning listener and you haven't had a chance to leave a review yet, you can head to rate this podcast.com slash 7FM. That's rate this podcast.com slash 7FM. And that's going to show you exactly how to leave a review. And when that comes through, I'm absolutely going to read it. I'm going to be very, very happy and do a little dance. You can imagine that I do that every single time I get one, <laughs> but I appreciate it every single time I see one come in. And not only do I appreciate it, but it's also going to help more people to access the wisdom that's being shared on the show. So that again can be found at rate this podcast.com slash 7FM. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible conversation with our first illusionist ever to appear on the show, Harris the Third. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, 
How can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Harris the Third, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here, my friend. Excited to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, and quick shout out to Jay Oaks, who made this incredible introduction, and I know he listens to an episode every once in a while, so grateful for you, Jay, for uh, getting to hang out with Harris today. But Harris, I thought we'd start today with kind of taking you back, taking everyone back to little nine-year-old Harris and kind of where everything all began. So it's a very memorable Christmas. You have something on your wish list. Tell us what happens from there. <laughs> oh, it's the baseball glove. Man, that dang baseball <laughs> glove. I wanted it so bad, um, you know, and I'll never forget walking into my grandparents' house, into the living room, looking under the tree, seeing the box that's under the tree. And I'm like, that's it. That's the glove is the perfect size. Yeah. As you know, it ended up not being a baseball glove. It was a box of magic tricks, like a simple magic kit. I immediately was so bumped. I was like, this is stupid. Uh, why would you buy me magic tricks? I didn't ask for magic tricks. I had no interest in magic tricks. I'd never shown any interest in magic. Um, it was just one of those random gifts that my grandmother got me that year. And it took a few days, but finally, uh, out of boredom, learned my first trick thinking, still thinking this is dumb. No one's going to be fooled by this. I march into the living room. My mom and dad are watching TV and I'm like, mom and dad gather around. Here's what grandma got me for Christmas <laughs> and uh, put a little ball in a cup and made it disappear and reappear. And they were blown. Their eyes lit up. My eyes lit up. I was like, I think I might do magic for the rest of my life. Here we are. Dang. Okay. So let's fill in a little bit of gaps between nine-year-old Harris and, and we'll just, we'll, we'll make the break at 22 year old Harris. So like you, you, that was kind of the, the introduction to magic, fill us in a little bit of that gap right there. And then we can take things from there. Yeah. It was pretty crazy. Magic really changed my life. You know, at that time at nine, I was, uh, grow, you know, still growing up in a little small town in Southeast Tennessee, that mom and dad that I was talking about had a minimum wage job, both of them. And so we were kind of scraping by, didn't have access to a lot of different opportunity outside of what my parents did their best to provide. And um, so when I latched on to magic, it finally felt like, oh, maybe this is a something I can finally be good at. Maybe this will keep me from getting bullied at school because just constantly being made fun of for not being great at anything else. And then I uh, started traveling around, doing a few shows. By the time I was 11, I finally got paid to do a show. I got paid 25 bucks. Nice. I was on top of the world. I was like, I'm going to get rich and famous. Like $25 felt like so much money to really to any 11 year old, but especially an 11 year old growing up in the lower part of the middle class. Right. And so, uh, started taking it even more seriously by the time I was about 14, 15. Um, I had dropped out of public school, went on the road full time, uh, did like a homeschool program. My parents jokingly called it hotel school instead of homeschool. Cause I started touring full time, uh, started making six figures as a teenager, by the time I was 18, I performed in almost all 50 states and a few countries on international tours, cruise ships, private events. And by 21, I made a million dollars doing magic shows. And uh, it's interesting that you point out 22 because that's the year I basically went bankrupt. So I went from <laughs> making a million dollars by 21 to being, you know, not not just out of money by 22. I'd wasted a million dollars and then some, um, but also had racked up a few hundred thousand dollars and just really dumb bad consumer debt. So pretty big 180 roller yeah. coaster ride for sure. Okay. So that is so exciting. I'm sure there's so much more we could dive into there, but uh, the reason why I picked, uh, I wanted you to go up to 22 because in 
this in your incredible book, the the wonder switch, the difference between limiting your life and living your dream, which I would highly recommend anyone check out right now. You can go find it on Amazon. We'll have it linked up in the show notes. Um, one of the models that you've developed is you talk about how there's positive inciting incidents and negative inciting incidents that can kind of trigger the yeah. wonder switch being turned on or being turned off. And the reason why I wanted to stop at 22 is because in your book, you tell a story right about that I think happens right around here that I think was one of the actual positive inciting moments in your life where a wonder switch was turned on. And it has to do with... Um, you were performing at a small town in Michigan, doing a show at a public high school. And that kind of yeah. served as a, as a big catalyst. So would you mind taking us back to that show? What happened that day? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, you know, still in my mid twenties at this point, uh, I was trying to dig out of debt, uh, start asking questions about what life is all about. Cause clearly when you go from making a million by 21 to losing it all by 22, it forces you to take a step back and ask some bigger existential questions about meaning and purpose. And what am I doing with my life? And, is this what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? And so the only thing that I knew how to do throughout the process of me asking those questions was magic. That's all I'd known since I was a little kid. And so I'm asking these big questions, but I'm still simultaneously doing what I do, which is traveling around performing magic. And I'm at this school in Michigan. To be honest with you, the only reason I was there uh, was to try to sell tickets to another bigger show later that evening. And so we would go into his town and we would do assembly programs and presentations at the school, anything from the school saying, Hey, you can come in and do a show for the, all of the entire student body to, yeah, you can come into the lunchroom or the cafeteria, walk around with a deck of cards and try to, you know, get, get some hype for the show later that night. And I remember walking into this particular school and the principal was like, Hey, you're the magic guy. You know how to trick people. Why don't you go out there and instead of just tricking them, help them understand how they're getting tricked into making the choices they're making. He didn't say it that exact way, uh, but I was basically like, I think he's trying to ask me to be some sort of motivational speaker. And that's not what I do. Um, I'm just here to do a magic show, man. And he's like, yeah, but like be transparent, tell them some of your story. Uh, and then he just goes out and introduces me. And so I'm out there doing this show and I get through the entire show. The last thing I did, the only trick I remember still is doing a straight jacket escape, like a la Harry Houdini. And I remember getting out of the straight jacket looking over the principal and he's kind of giving me like these two thumbs up, like say something, you know, and I hold up the straight jacket. And I'm like, Hey, if it felt like that was hard, it's because it was, if it looked hard, it's because it was. Um, and I don't know what your straight jacket is. I've had a lot of straight jackets in my lifetime and it just kind of opened up and got real and raw and vulnerable for the first time in front of a live audience about a lot of the stuff that I'd struggle with in my life from abuse of my childhood to, you know, getting bullied and made fun of to making a million dollars and then wasting it all, trying to keep up with the Joneses, straight jacket after straight jacket. And I said, Hey, I'm still trying to figure my own life out. I'm not here to tell you I have all the answers. I just want to let you know, like, whatever it is, keep going, like, keep going. There's always hope. And then I'm beating myself up because I'm like, that was awful. I should have just stuck to the script. This girl comes up to me, all the students leave, except for this one girl. She starts walking up to me. She's bawling. She has tears running down her cheeks. She walks up and she says, Hey, I have something for you. Uh, can I give it to you? I said, what is it? And she said, hold out your hands. She reaches into her pocket and she pulled out as a razor blade, pulls a razor blade out, drops it into my hands and said, that's my straight jacket. And I don't want it anymore. And you're the first person to ever make me feel like my life matters. And then she turns and walked away. I never even got her name in that moment, but I'll never forget seeing the scars on her wrists and her arms as she walked away. 
Um, she sort of like sheepishly put her hands in her pockets and I have that image like burned into my brain. Um, and it, honestly, man, up until that point, everyone had always come up to me after presentations, either wanting an autograph or a picture or obsessed with the secrets to how the magic tricks work. Dude, how'd you do that magic trick? How'd you make that table levitate? How'd you get out of that straight jacket? How, how, how? And all of a sudden someone come up to me and they, they weren't, they weren't like, how'd you do that? How'd you do that? How'd you do this? It was just wow, that was amazing. And here's how it impacted me. You gave me hope. And I became one addicted to um, that level of meaning and depth. I wanted that type of reaction to what I was doing. I wanted to make a difference and instead of trying to make money. And second, all of a sudden I became obsessed with trying to understand why would someone do that to themselves? Because even though I'd had a lot of struggles in my childhood and even as a teenager, I, I had never gotten to the point of self-harm. And so sort of becoming intimately um, connected to that issue, I started asking questions like what leads someone to make these types of choices? And that led me down a rabbit hole of research that changed the trajectory of my entire career as a, as a performer. Yeah. Mm. So in, in your book, you talk about how one of the fundamental things in a story is what happens next? <laughs> you know, so that's like the question that's popping into my mind. So like, obviously you were doing all these tricks. You were really good at deceiving people and making people believe things that weren't necessarily real. And then you got kind of a glimpse of what it would be like to kind of leverage those powers in a different context. Um, yeah. And I know one of the things that your work eventually led to was helping people to craft more powerful, more powerful stories, both for themselves. And then obviously you do some work nowadays, helping other companies to craft powerful stories, to take on a legacy or make a bigger impact. So I would love to cover both of those in some respects for the rest of our time today, but I figured we'd start with something that's really relevant to the person that's hanging out with us right now. And that's the stories that are going on in your brain that, that you, you that's listening right now. Sure. So before we dive into that though, let's just kind of set some context and expand about why stories are so important and why we're hardwired for story. And then we can maybe dive into some of the stories that our friend here listening could kind of unleash and, and recorrect. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, it started with that conversation with that young lady, you know, and I, when I said, why would someone do this to themselves? Um, I started bumping into, okay, there are, there are lies that she had been tricked into believing. I started seeing a parallel between how magic tricks work and how all deception works and really the only, the only difference between someone that we would label as a con man or a deceiver compared to a leader, a really great leader, or someone who's really persuasive is just the motive behind how they're using these different psychological principles. They're using the same principles and skill sets just for different motives and purposes, right? And so once I connected those dots, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm starting to care less about how magic tricks work and why magic tricks work. And that's when I started bumping into narrative, right? I was like, okay, what's happening is out of a desire to sell this young lady, the right brand of car or the right pair of jeans or makeup or perfume or whatever, someone is creating not just a story that they're telling her, but they're trying to get her to adopt a narrative. So that, that narrative drives her thinking and choices, everything from buying choices to just her personal behavior at home. And all of a sudden that's happening across the entire school. So if she doesn't measure up to the expectation of what her friends thinks she should be, she gets bullied. Uh, if she doesn't feel like she's enough, she starts to become numb and wants to feel anything, which is why she would pull out a razor blade. So I started thinking like, who are these, where are these stories coming from? And who are these storytellers and realize like, okay, there's probably a guy in a boardroom somewhere in an ad agency who 
feels pressure by a client to like, Hey, we need to sell more jeans this season. He probably wasn't thinking, I want young women to harm themselves, but I don't think well, whoever that storyteller was in that particular moment, I don't think they realized how much power they had, which is why I think Steve Jobs was right. The most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. Plato is often miss miss. Uh, it's, I think it's something he talked about, but we sort of missummarize it. We said, he who tells the stories rules the world or he who tells the stories rules society. And so I thought someone ought to be gathering these people together to have a collective conversation about this power that they have so they can use their power wisely. So that's when we started doing story conference. And then, you know, teams of people from companies like Apple and Google and Disney and Nat Geo and Nike and all these amazing brands started showing up. But then in the process of interacting with them about the stories that they tell, what I realized is that this sort of higher calling to do better and to wield their power for good, we were bumping into an entirely different issue. And that was the fact that these storytellers were giving lots of consideration to the stories they tell others through their work, but very little consideration to the stories they tell themselves about who they are and what they're capable of. And dude, when I started connecting those dots, it's like the fireworks went off in my brain. And I was like, okay, I think this is how we actually shift the narrative. I think this is how we repaint the future um, is by not just becoming better at telling stories to others, but better understanding the stories that we tell ourselves. And so um, started studying, you know, more stuff about neuroscience and how our brains work and realized that we really are storytelling creatures. We walk around all day long, creating stories, making up stories to make sense of the experiences that we have. And so even if you don't tell me a well, uh, thought out, compelling story, even in the in the gap of not receiving great storytelling from you, my brain still has to make up a story to fill in the blanks of what I think you're trying to say to me. Um, and that that story that I tell myself may be true, it may not be, but we have to examine them and become a little bit more uh, skeptical about them because those stories that we adopt as true, whether they actually are or not, are driving all of our thinking and choices and behavior. We do this so much that even when we sleep at night, our brain stays up all night long telling ourselves more stories. And it's like almost going through the filing cabinet of stories that we told ourselves throughout the day, figuring out which ones need to become solidified as memories, which ones are irrelevant and can be tossed aside. Essentially, we tell ourselves stories to survive. Mm -hmm. It's really fascinating stuff. Super fascinating. And I think you give an example in the book too about like someone cuts you off in traffic. And even in that moment, your brain or your unconscious almost kind of creates a narrative and starts thinking about yeah. what might happen if I act this way. Cause it's like, we instantaneously are creating different scenarios and it's all done in story. And I would yeah. also highly encourage anybody to check out. If you go to Harris, III.com, Harris, the third.com, he has this masterclass um, that I would encourage anybody to check out as well. But um, in that masterclass, when I, when I was watching it and doing some research, I love the way that you articulated it. And that narrative is essentially like the operating system of our brain, just like iOS yeah is the operating system for iPhone. Like it just, me, that really solidified the fact that holy, holy crap, holy shit. <laughs> you know, like our operating <laughs> system is really, really based and just uh, glued into these stories. So now yeah. we understand the the, the power and, and we may not even realize, have realized up to this point that we have these stories that are going on in, in our minds. And we have some stories that are positive and we have some stories that are negative as well. And sometimes those negative stories are holding us back in ways that we can't even understand. So from kind of going through your content, I, I would love to start with the, per now, now we can start to make this applicable. So let's say the person listening right now, 
maybe doesn't even really realize they haven't really done that much exploration, um, but they feel like stuck in certain ways. And here, here they listen to this podcast right now. And Harris is like, Hey, we might have some of these stories that are kind of lurking in the background. So how does somebody go about uncovering some of those maybe negative or untrue stories that are directing the rest of our lives? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, and thanks for mentioning that, that little masterclass that's free on the site. Cause that, that really walks through and unlocks the power of something we developed called the transformation map. Um, and that wasn't created in isolation. A lot of different people from trainers to psychologists, neuroscientists helped collaborate on that. It was really us trying to map out how, how does someone move from an old story to a new story or how does someone get stuck in an old story? And so to the person that you're referencing, who might be listening in, who is curious enough to examine those stories, it all, it all is trying to get us back to an inciting incidents, those inciting incidents that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. What is the inciting incident that gave birth to the story that you're currently living in? Uh, and is that a story that you want to be living in? One of the ways you can start uh, is to get curious about the things that you're curious about. So um, one of the things that I like to reframe for people is the work of human imagination. We, we often think that imagination is something that is childlike. Um, and as we sort of grow up, our imagination fades. So you hear a lot of speakers and, you know, motivational gurus talk all the time. It's like, oh, we got to get back to like the imagination you had when you were a child. And that is partially true, but people talk about it as if imagination is something that fades away and it doesn't. So you and I, as adults, we use our imaginations every day, but unfortunately a lot of adults are misusing their imagination to worry or to fear or be anxious about all the potential things that could possibly go wrong. You had a great example earlier, the idea of like you're in the backseat of a cab or an Uber, say the driver starts texting, right? While you're driving, if you're sitting in the backseat and you don't feel safe in that moment, maybe your heart rate start, starts going up. Maybe your palms get sweaty. What's essentially happening is that your brain, because it's based on storytelling, it's fast forwarding in the story that you're in. And then it's developing an image and this is happening oftentimes outside of our conscious awareness, right? Like you might see yourself ending up in a ditch or rear-ending the car in front of you. You send that image back to your nervous system. It's like, I don't like this image. I need to get safe to a safer place right now. So the, those are signals, the faster heart rate, the sweaty palms. Those are signals in response to imaginative, creative work. So if we understand that curiosity is simply our imagination fast-forwarding in the story, then we can understand that worry is a misuse of imagination. And we simply need to examine what is captivating, what has hijacked our imagination. And if it's focused on these, all, all these constant negative outcomes, uh, then you can just reallocate all of that creativity. Cause that is a form of creativity, even though it's destructive instead of productive, you can reallocate that creative energy into crafting a different narrative, stepping into a new story. And that's often where people get stuck is in that exercise of how am I using my imagination right now? And if we're misusing our imagination to worry and fear about all the potential things that could possibly go wrong, that's most often evident of a negative inciting incident that led to a broken narrative. Um, and we can dig into that a little bit if you'd like, is essentially a conversation around how trauma works, where it's stored in our brains, the shame that that gives birth to, and how we make up these untrue stories, which is a lie to make sense of that painful experience. Yeah. Let's, let's go there. Let's dive in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as you examine how you're using your imagination, if you're constantly finding yourself going towards a negative story, 
and you're trapped in that cycle and that's a story that you want to get out of, again, that is just evidence that there is something that you've not dealt with around an inciting incident. So trauma is, I think, a really misunderstood word. My friend, Mark Pimsler has taught me so much about it. He's a great experiential therapist. And he's the one that taught me that trauma is stored in the lower third limbic system of our brains. It's a part where a lot of active imagination and storytelling takes place. And so as a result, if trauma gets stored there, it's always active. His goal as an experiential therapist is to help you reframe that story and do what he calls move that trauma up into the right to a different section of your brain where you could acknowledge the reality of that trauma. Hey, that trauma happened. That experience was real. It sucked. All the pain associated with it was real, but it just because it happened doesn't mean it's happening now. Just because it happened then doesn't mean it's happening today. And so by developing a redemptive perspective on your suffering, um, you can sort of see the role that trauma played in your overarching story, which is really great work. If you don't do that healing work around trauma, it gives birth to shame, potential addiction. That's how we end up medicating. We come trapped in these misuse of imagination type cycles where we're constantly pessimistic and assume the worst in every situation. And if you have a traumatic experience that you don't respond to with truth, that's where those untrue stories come from. I'll give an example. Um, you take, uh, maybe you're in the third grade and you, I have a friend who, uh, he's one of, in one of our coaching groups. And, um, when we went through this process with him, he went back to an experience in the third grade where his teacher completely humiliated him something to do with, he had left his homework at home. He went to school. Teacher's like, where's his, where's your homework? He's like, I left it at home. She's like, no, you didn't. You didn't do your homework. He's like, no, I left it at home. She's like, give me your backpack. She pulls his backpack, unzips it, dumps everything out of the entire backpack on the floor is, and then starts yelling at him in the classroom. Like, where's your homework? And he's like, I left it at home. She just straight up doesn't believe him and thinks he's lying. Well, in that moment, he's embarrassed. He feels shame, right? Traumatic experience that a little third-year-old boy or third grade boy doesn't have the ability to process properly. And so what happens in that moment, he has to make sense of that pain because he is a storytelling creature because narrative is the operating system of his brain. So what does he do? He says, well, this must have happened because I'm not good enough. She's labeling me as a liar. Teachers are smart. Third graders aren't. I'm supposed to trust adults and grownups. Maybe she's right, right? So his third grade brain all of a sudden is bumping into things that don't compute. Teachers are good. Teachers are safe. I'm enough. I'm cool. I'm smart because I finished my homework on time. All those things are all of a sudden there's conflict that are that are saying, hey, all that stuff you assume to be true may not be true after all. That is the birthplace of lies, right? When we experience trauma, we're quite literally bumping into something in our narrative that conflicts with what we previously thought to be true. And if we don't heal from that experience or respond to it with truth and maturity, or we don't have the maturity yet to respond to it with truth and wisdom, then all of a sudden a lie gets born to make sense of the pain. Mm -hmm. I'm not enough. I'm stupid. I don't belong. I'm not worthy of acceptance. I can't do this thing because it's impossible. And man, when those lies are given birth to, and we get tricked into believing them, it breaks our narrative, turns the wonder switch off. And the majority of people stay stuck in that cycle. They get stuck in that old story. They get stuck in complacency. They get stuck in anxiety and they spend the rest of their life with a limiting mindset that holds them back from stepping into the stories that I really think they're capable of living out.
I always love looking at overlaps between different models that I've encountered. And I was having a conversation with an incredible entrepreneur back in September, actually, where I was hanging out with Jay last. Uh, his name is Neil Moore. And we were talking about his behavioral mechanics model. And he points to this, you know, the inciting incident, especially when formed in childhood. And I might not get all the details correct, but from what I remember, it's basically like you have this inciting incident and what happens on a neurochemical level is you have these endorphins and things that are released in your brain, like they're actual brain drugs that you, that your brain just gets flooded with. And then, you know, if you don't handle it correctly, you could be looking for new ways to find more of that, that hit that you got, or you kind of start protecting yourself from situations like that. And sometimes that can lead to you manifesting more situations where you're actually feeding yourself more of that neurochemistry that you got. So it's, it's cool to see that overlap. Um, yeah. And I, I wanted to, so, so let's, let's get to this point. Okay. So we, we, have someone that's listening right now, they realize that they may not have been using their imagination the best. They're using it to worry about something. And they look at this surface level worry, they dig deep a little bit, and they find out that there might have been an incident where they had their teacher dumping their homework out in front of the entire class, right? So now we have this negative story that we've identified. So now the next part is like, how now that we've identified it, how do we go about actually rewriting or correcting that story in a way that mm-hmm. is healthy in a way that actually empowers us to move forward in a way that taps us into our imagination the way it's supposed to be used. So now that we yeah. found it, what do we do with it, Harris? <laughs> <laughs> we decide whether we take the red pill or the blue pill. <laughs> <laughs> Is that easy? <laughs> yeah. We, we find out just how deep the rabbit hole really goes as Morpheus says. Yeah. I mean, that's often the case. It starts with just the questioning and as simple as that sounds, it's really hard to do. It's hard to question your own narrative to take a step back and try to step outside of yourself and go, Okay, what do I believe? And is that belief system really true? And have any forms of deception or lies or untrue stories crept their way into my personal narrative? You know, one of the things that I love about being a magician is it teaches us how poorly human beings use our senses to determine what reality is, right? Like it doesn't take more than a simple magic trick. In 30 seconds, a magician can prove to you that seeing is not believing. And yet the majority of human beings live as if seeing is believing. I I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. It felt like a good idea at the time. These are all things that people say to justify experiences that often have led them to regret, right? Just because something feels like a good idea at the time doesn't mean it is. We've all made mistakes because something felt like a good idea at the time. But yet if things are not always as they seem, then how is it that we examine uh, that narrative? And it all comes back to our belief systems, right? So if seeing is not believing, what the science actually supports is that believing is seeing, what we believe is actually informing what we see. And that's that's why this is so hard, right? So the person who's standing in front of the mirror, who has trauma from their past that they haven't healed from or dealt with, the lie they turned that experience into or the lie that they gave birth to to make sense of that pain was, I'm not enough, right? Let's take the young lady that dropped the razor blade into my hand, for example. She believes I'm not enough. I'm not worthy of love and belonging. If she stands in front of the mirror, looking at the reflection of herself, That lie that she believes, even though it's not true, is informing what she sees. All of a sudden, the truth, again, it's not truth, but she's adopted it as truth. The truth that she has adopted in her own personal narrative is informing what she's seeing. And now she's actively looking for evidence in the world, form of confirmation bias, to support what she has been tricked into believing as true. So now this person, instead of actively looking for examples of ways where she is enough, 
to question her belief system. She's looking for things to affirm her belief system because her brain is just trying to keep her safe from the pain that she experienced in her past. So it's the, the, the process of questioning those narratives comes down to really questioning our belief system. Is this really true? And I think there's only three lies that we get tricked into believing. They, if you were to take all the different lies and put them into buckets, I think there's only three of them. It's I'm not enough. I don't belong. And I can't. And there's a million variations of I can't. Basically, there's something that you want or desire that you feel either undeserving of or that you feel like is impossible to attain. And if you look at the questioning of your internal narratives through the lens of those three lies, it becomes a little bit easier to uncover some things. Um, now, that, that brings us to a conversation around positive awe states, uh, which is where the neuroscience kicks in. Because if I come to you and I'm like, hey, Brandon, listen, I can tell by the way you're talking about yourself right now, man, there's some, there's some stuff that you're believing that's just not true. And I want to offer you a different story. I may not lose, use that language, but I'm like, hey, what if this is possible instead? You keep saying you can't do that thing, but what if you can't? Now, when I say that to you, what your brain is doing is going, uh, yeah, Harris, that doesn't compute with the narrative that I already believe about myself. And so, you know what? I'll believe in that when I see it. But remember, seeing is not believing, right? We assume it is. So you're saying, when I see it, then I will believe it because right now I don't believe it. But if believing is seeing, then the only way for you to see in yourself the same thing that I'm seeing in you is to choose to believe it first. One of my favorite quotes is from Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl said, those who don't believe in magic will never find it, which means Sometimes you have to believe in magic before you can see it. Sometimes you have to believe in these things about yourself before you can see it. And that might sound like new age woo-woo stuff to a whole bunch of people, but I'm not talking about the close your eyes and wish for a private jet, open your eyes and it's there. It's that you have to give your brain permission to question the narrative, to question the lie and step into a positive awe state that permits you to believe that it's true. Now, why do I say positive awe state? This is really exciting. Uh, when I started writing my book, The Wonder Switch, um, I started dipping into a whole bunch of very new research coming out of UC Berkeley around what they were calling positive awe states. Why positive? Because awe is the root of the word awesome and awful, right? So you can go to a restaurant, have a horrible experience and be like, I'm just in awe of how awful that was, right? Um, or you could be like, I'm in awe of how incredible that was. That was mind blowing. So what they're discovering in positive awe states they're so powerful. They, they shift the physiology in our bodies. They produce cytokines. They boost our immune system, decrease chronic inflammation, all this crazy stuff. Right. But my favorite part of the research is best way of understanding it is that that narrative that we keep talking to talking about your brain has like a vice grip on that narrative. This is the narrative that I have adopted as true. And anything that you offer me that conflicts with that, I'm going to respond with cynicism and say, I'll believe it when I see it. But when we are in a positive awe state, when our brain is going, whoa, wow, when it's when our imagination is being stirred in positive, productive ways, our brain, it sort of begins to loosen its grip on that existing narrative. And we have more permission to be curious. And so that questioning process um, is so much easier when we're in a state of childlike wonder, because that wonder sort of opens us up. That wonder gives us permission to believe and it allows your brain to go, okay, I'm, I don't know if I believe that yet, but I'm going to give myself permission to get curious with you. Maybe that story that you're telling me 
is more true than the one I'm currently telling myself. And it's in that positive awe state that lies get replaced with the truth, that the untrue stories get replaced with true stories about who we really are and what we're actually capable of. And so it's that it's about that positive inciting incident. How do we have another inciting incident that's positive instead of negative? For some people, it might be this podcast interview. It's just a little spark, a podcast interview that serves as a spark that makes people go, hmm, I wonder, hmm, what if, what if I'm capable of more than I thought? Yeah. yeah. Does that I, make sense? I, yeah, absolutely. And I love this because, I mean, the first step is, I mean, there's the, the conscious, I forget what the name of it. There's like the learning model. There's like unconscious incompetence, conscious competence. It's basically like the first step of learning is going from unconscious incompetence where you don't even know what there is to know. Um, and so hopefully this is awakening some people to understand that this is stuff to absolutely start exploring. And another thing I'll just say really quick, another resource that Harris has on a site that I went and I took the test that if you want it, when he talks about the three biggest lies, if you go to harrisiii.com slash biggest dash lie, I'll have that in the show notes. You can find out, um, I don't think it's necessarily prescriptive Harris, but like the most likely, you know, what, 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 what would one of the biggest lies be and how can you can begin to explore that? So, um, there are a few, and maybe you tapped into this a little bit, but there are a few more directions we can go. I know this, obviously writing the story after you've identified it, that's the most healing, the most transformative part. I've heard you mention in the past, something called the story spine. If I, if I, if I heard that correctly, or it's an exercise that you can go through, is that another thing that would be valuable for people to kind of start adjusting this for them? Yeah, for sure. It just, it forces you out of your pre-existing framework, your pre-existing narrative. It, it gets you back into that what if space, right? Otherwise we end up howing our wows to death. The moment you get into that wow state and your wonder starts whispering to you that more is possible when it starts whispering new stories, it, your, your, the how part of your brain is like, well, how's that going to work? How's that going to be possible? And so the story spine is a simple resource that just serves as an exercise to just go, you know what, just try it. Just submit to the journey of getting curious about how the story could unfold. Um, the story spine was popularized by the folks at Pixar. I first learned about it from my friend, Matthew Lund, who was the story supervisor at Pixar for over 20 years, uh, has just a crazy career as a storyteller. Um, but it actually was born out of improv theater decades ago where improv theater guys were using it to try to like, how do we write a story very quickly? sort of off the cuff. And it's, you know, once upon a time and every day until one day. Uh, and then there's, it forces you to be like, okay, let's choose an inciting incident. Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you use this to create a sort of fictitious, even if you think it's fictional version, imaginative version of a future story of your life, you begin to unlock a little bit more possibility mm-hmm. and it takes you to that awe state. It takes you more into curiosity, which is just wonder in action. And just, again, it makes it a little bit easier to believe mm. that it can. Okay. So I'm just trying to picture it. Cause I haven't, I haven't seen the story spine. I just, I just, it sounded really interesting. I'm picturing sure. in my brain, the first thing that pops up is like an image of those, those uh, anatomy of a spine. And then I'm in my mind, I'm picturing, cause I was, for, for, for some reason, I think about this, I'm, I'm seeing kind of like uh, blanks next to different parts of the spine. That's like, oh, this is uh-huh. how the story is kind of uh, formed. If you feel in this blank, then go here and here. So like if somebody were to kind yeah. of attempt this, is there a few kind of like prompts that they fill it in yeah. and they go about moving forward? Is that how it works? Yeah. You want to try it in real time? I'm totally sure, putting you on it. the spot let's here. All right. Let's, uh, what's something you're dreaming about right now? Could be growth of the podcast, new project, a book you're writing. Um, so I, I, we'll make it how, how complex or simple do we want to go? 
It doesn't matter. You're, you're okay. Choice. Let's go. Let's go with growth of the podcast. That's something that everybody here is sure. is um, you know involved with as well because you're listening. All right. So once upon a time, there was a guy named Brandon who started a podcast called Seven Figure Millennial, and every single day, what happened? He was every, what? Every single day, he woke up thinking about the people that he wanted to have on his show and the impact that he can make if he shared those stories with the world. Okay. Until one day. And now let's insert a positive inciting incident here that you feel like, dude, that would stir my wonder. That would leave me in awe if that actually happened until one day. What? Um, a positive one. Let's, yeah. let's say there's a, there's a, a guest that I have that opens my mind in a, in a, in a way that I never even realized and shattered a, a limiting belief. I had that kind of opened the doors to a whole new world. Okay. Now here we do a series of something called, and because of that, so, and so because of that, what happened? I was able to uncounter negative limiting beliefs that I had that expanded into other parts of my life beyond the podcast. Okay. And because of that, I felt more love and compassion for myself because I identified one of the main lies that I had was that I'm not enough. Okay. And because of that, I didn't have to worry anymore about uh, like the the thing that so many people in imposter syndrome and comparing yourself to others and um, comparing your inside to other people's outsides. Okay. And since that day, what happened? And since that day, I felt free. I felt like um, I didn't have to overthink or overprocess things and know that everything was going to turn out the way it was supposed to. And whether it was a success or a failure, I was able to leverage that as something to grow from. Okay. And the moral of that story would be what? That I am enough and anybody listening to this is enough as well. And that the only thing that's holding you back is the false narrative that is going inside of your brain that is holding you back from actually trying and expanding beyond what you thought was possible. Yeah. So that's a great job at using that exercise. Yeah, I, yeah, if I put, yeah. <laughs> yeah, great job. If I were to put my coaching hat on, I would have two follow-up questions for you. That, that would be, how does that story make you feel? Whether that's emotionally, physically in your body, is there anything that you notice? How does that story make you feel? Um, and so we could spend time talking about that if we had time. Uh, and then my other question would be, what do you need to believe to be true in order for that story to become a reality? Hmm. And that second question allows you to start bumping into, oh, well, I would have to believe this. And right now I believe this. And you start getting these points of contrast and those things those points of contrast that you bump into, that's the conflict in your story that we've got to work through. And mm. so it sort of highlights those limiting beliefs, which can make your, the inner work that you have to do a little bit more targeted and effective and efficient, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. That's, oh man, that's so cool. That's such an excavation tool. I'm absolutely digging up the transcript and finding out those prompts <laughs> that you had. That was super cool. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. What would you need to believe in order to be true for, for that to become a reality? And so, okay, so there's actually, this leads me to another thing that I would think be really valuable at this specific point. So let's say somebody was listening, they paused, they rewind 30 seconds a few times, uh, <laughs> and they, they wrote that down and they filled in their own blanks with that. And they realized that there's a new story that they need to jump into. And I think I had this written down as my notes that whenever you're making a transformation, transformation is jumping from an old story to a new story. And so if you can kind of imagine like a, 
a, a cliff with a gap between it or two buildings, you know, one is the old story, mm-hmm. one is the new story. And you talk about something else in the book um, that happens once you jump from an old story to a new story called liminal space. And yeah. the reason why I want to go here is just so that you listening, if you're going through this, it's always helpful to know in the steps of a process what could be coming and how things are going to feel because it's not necessarily a comfortable feeling. But uh, so that's just some context to why I want to go here. But tell us a little bit about what to expect if we if we jump from an old story to a new story. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, change doesn't happen overnight. Right. And this is super relevant after living through a global pandemic. Right. Because I think it's it gives us language for a lot of the discomfortable, the uncomfortable things that we've been feeling. Um, liminal space really came out of this, some old spiritual mystics and now cultural anthropologists are kind of studying it. And what we're realizing is that liminal space is kind of this, this weird undefined gap between an old story and a new story where instead of in the process of transformation, instead of just going through this little blip on the radar where everything changes overnight, there is this long, uh, dark night of the soul where it feels like there's no story. So if you have an old story, a new story, liminal space is the no story. It's the space between the no longer and the not yet. I have a friend who calls it the messy middle mm-hmm. as a creator. I have another friend who calls it hell in the hallway because yeah, it feels like, man, a door closed, but the next one hasn't opened yet. We had another guest really quick, just to interject. Uh, he called it surfing yeah. the void. Uh, so that was Shannon. Graham, <laughs> I you know, love that. Like in between. So that, there's another one. For That's you. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so many fun metaphors for it. Uh, but if you look at it from a story telling perspective, liminal space is the space where there is no story. Now let's rewind back to the beginning of our conversation. If we're storytelling creatures, if we tell stories and make up stories to make sense of our experiences, but if the thing we're currently experiencing is a space where there is no story, yeah. but if narrative drives behavior, what happens when the narrative goes away? What happens when the story's gone? We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing. We don't know what choices to make, like what our next steps are in our work, right? And so it's really uncomfortable. And so I think the first point of bringing it up is really just to acknowledge that that space exists. So when we enter into it, we can be aware of it. We can have a name for it. And that alone, I think, gives us a little bit of peace and comfort. Like, Mm. oh, I'm not losing my mind. I'm not crazy. This isn't the point where I quit. I need to keep pressing forward. This is just really uncomfortable because... I'm outside of the script. There is no script anymore, Yeah, which is quite literally a lot of people are like, you need to step outside of your comfort zone. When, if you think through the lens of narrative being our operating system, then our, the point outside our comfort zone is, is the equivalent of going off script. That's what's happening. You're going off script without the script. You don't know who you are or what you're supposed to do because the script is what's driving your thinking and behavior. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when we're in liminal space, a space where there's no story, again, we have two options. We can misuse our imagination to be scared, which is what we typically do when we're sitting in the dark and we can't see what's going on around us or what's up ahead of us. Or we can recognize it as a blank canvas. We can get really creative and use our imagination in productive and positive ways. Because when we go through a liminal space where there is no story, it means that we all of a sudden have stepped out of the old story. And even though the new story hasn't been realized yet, we're in the process of writing it, which Mm -hmm. I think can be really encouraging and hopeful. So I think there's hope in the liminal space Um, and that hope is anchored in the fact that things are changing, that we're in transition. And that can be really hard for someone who was like, dude, I was, I was totally content in the story that I was in. And then a pandemic got announced and I was kicked out of the story I was in against my will. Sometimes that happens too. We just have to, we have to get really comfortable being uncomfortable 
and figure out, okay, how do we innovate and change and get creative? Which again, just comes back to uh, making sure that our mindset is driven from a place of wonder instead of from a place of worry. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Liminal space is powerful. I used to think it was the space where we're all our becoming happens. Um, I'm beginning to think of it as a space of unbecoming. Mm. It reminds me of that Paulo Coelho quote where he talked about maybe the, I'm going to butcher it. Maybe the point isn't to become anything. Maybe the point is to unbecome all the things that were never really meant to be you mm. in the first place. Yeah. And I think I th- it's and I think easier that, to unbecome. Yeah, yeah. And I would encourage anyone to check out your, some of your YouTube and your, your site. He's got all this crazy content or cute content. I guess it was a better word for that than crazy. It's like his kids and the footage of how kids uh. <laughs> awaken story, a story and wonder for you. So that's something yeah. for anyone to explore as well. And thank you for sharing that because I just really think it helps to know that when you reach that space, that it's not abnormal, that like, it's something that many people experience that you should be experiencing if you're growing and changing and pivoting. And, uh, there's, there's lots of power in knowing, uh, what to expect once you hit that point. So yeah, no uh, doubt. And, and stop, stop comparing your liminal space to someone else's new story, right? Like we're so guilty of comparing our chapter one to someone else's chapter 10. Um, and we're just like, I don't understand. And that's why it leads to that dark night of the soul. Cause we're just like, Ah, oh, but that person, it's like, they're in chapter 10, you're in chapter one, they're in chapter seven, you're in chapter four. Stop comparing your chapter to where they are in their story. Love that. Love that. I'm going to, I'm not going to recite it perfectly, but I'm going to capture that quote. So we, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you got a, a call in just a few minutes here. And selfishly, I want to talk to you for two minutes after we finish recording. So I'm just trying to <laughs> time this really quickly, but um, let's finish on this. Um, one of the things, another company you have is called Historia, if I got that right, I-S-T-O-R-I-A. And, you know, we talked a lot today about how the story that we're telling ourselves is very powerful, but, uh, the other component of what you do is helping people craft more powerful stories for their companies to create massive positive change. And one of the things that I highlighted and put stars next to is that you talk about how every problem is a storytelling problem. So, um, can you just expand on that a little bit and how you leverage that in your thinking to create positive change in the world? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, again, if if narrative drives thinking and behavior, then every problem is a storytelling problem. Um, and so it really just comes down to getting really curious about the current problem you're experiencing, what narrative is behind that. And we solve the problem by shifting the narrative. And so we do that by way of consulting with some really awesome large companies and small businesses around the world. Um, and we also do it for a lot of solopreneurs by way of a couple different resources like SoloCon, this annual conference that we produce for solopreneurs, which are very different than freelancers. I think the internet has the definition of solopreneur wrong. Mm. And so we're on a mission to change that. We do that by producing Story Conference, uh, which is a conference that we do in the fall for storytellers from around the world. And so uh, in our effort to serve uh, companies through our consulting work, the production of the conferences like SoloCon and Story conference. Um, We also have a coaching program called the inner circle where we invite business owners to come in Uh, a lot of like speakers, authors, coaches, consultants, solopreneurs who um, are bumping into problems, leveling up and growing their business. And a lot of that just comes down to mindset. There's a lot of skill sets that we help them develop as entrepreneurs in the inner circle, but 80% of the time it's something to do with mindset and mindset is just another way of talking about storytelling problems. So we all just need a new story and it's really hard to, to excavate ourselves from our own stories by ourselves in isolation. And so, uh, we just find that people need help myself included. 
Yeah, that's so powerful. And now we've all identified the power of story in our personal lives. And I think it's that's a cool frame to have everything that every problem is a storytelling problem. Um, and I think that that's a really cool thing to think about as you grow your business, as you grow in your personal life. So thank you so much for sharing all this incredible stuff, Harris. Really last quick question is we mentioned lots of stuff. We talked about the masterclass on Harris.com. We talked about the, the big lie quiz Obviously, you talked about the book, uh, and those will all be included in the show notes. We just and you just mentioned some of these conferences. Any any other places where you'd want people to check out uh, if they want to explore your work some more? Uh, no, I would just say if you listen to this interview, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or an email, Harris at Astoria.com. So Harris at I S T O R I A dot com. Uh, anything at all. It could be as simple as, "Hey, man, enjoyed the interview. Uh, here's what I liked. I love hearing that kind of feedback." to, hey, here's my storytelling problem. There's so many different resources in the world. So whether that's something we offer or something that we're very aware of because of this extensive community of those who are leveraging the power of story around the world, it would be an honor to point you in the right direction so that you can get the help that you need with your storytelling problems. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And last thing is I'll have a conversation really quick with our friend that's listening. And I just want to say, if you are brand new you could be watching cat videos on the internet. You could be doing anything else, but you decided to hang out with me and Harris the third today. So, you know, maybe this was, as Harris mentioned before, with that spark, maybe this is something that inspired you to actually move forward. So I'm so grateful if you're brand new and you're listening to this for the first time, I would love to hang out with you some more. Uh, and if you're returning to thank you as well, like you are absolutely what makes this possible. I say it every single week, but I'm not going to stop saying it because I really am so grateful for you hanging out and whether you're new or returning, the favor I always ask is that if you've been moved by something that Harris talked about today and you realize that there's some work or you heard my story spine or you want to implement the story spine or you heard about Harris and the girl that dropped the razor in his hand, like these stories that he's telling can absolutely change your life. People that have shared podcasts with me have changed my life. So if you have one friend, just one friend that you think would be interested in leveraging storytelling to make a better, bigger impact in their life, please share this with them. But with all that said, Harris, thank you so much. This has been an absolute blast. I appreciate you so much. And I look forward to continuing the conversation, my friend. Yeah, man. Thanks for what you're doing. The work you're doing is important. And this has sparked more wonder for me today, hopefully for a lot of others. So keep it up. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, it's Brandon here again. And I have a quick favor to ask before you head off. And that is if you are listening to my voice right now, and you are currently using either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would help me a ton if you could stop what you're doing, take five seconds to tap the number of stars that you think the show deserves. So if you're on Spotify, there's a place to add a star rating right underneath the name of the show. And if you're listening on Apple, just scroll down where you're seeing all the episodes and there's something that says tap to rate. Just tap the number of the stars that you think the show deserves. And you may not know this, but I typically spend over five hours of my own time each week just researching a guest on the show. And then there's the time that's spent recording the show, the intro, reaching out to new guests, and of course, all the editing, publishing, promoting that my amazing wife and high school sweetheart, Leah, helps me to manage. So all that to say, there's a lot that goes on just to get to the point where you listen to this episode. So if you appreciate the content and have 10, five to 10 seconds to spare, it would help a ton if you could leave a quick rating on the show. Extra credit if you choose to leave a review, but just tapping whatever stars you feel the show deserves helps a ton and it takes so little time. So whether you choose to do that or not, I so appreciate you and I'll talk with you soon.